A new medical investigation changes our understanding of Elvis Presley's untimely death and offers some useful pearls for psychiatric practice. Welcome to the Carlite Psychiatry Podcast, keeping psychiatry honest since 2003. I'm Chris Aiken, the Editor-in-Chief of the Carlite Psychiatry Report. And I'm Kelly Newsom, a psych MP and a dedicated reader of every issue. Elvis Presley was born on January 8th, 1935. And if he was still alive, he would have celebrated his 88th birthday this month. But the chances that he would have made it to old age were very slim, even without the prescription drug abuse and fried banana sandwiches. Rock stardom is not the joyride it's made out to be. Grueling schedules, lack of privacy, never knowing who your real friends are, and all the fame magnifying your self-conscious thoughts. <laughs> who needs that? In 2007, researchers from the Center for Public Health in Liverpool examined the lifespans of the top 1,000 rock stars of the 20th century. The oldest was Elvis and the youngest Eminem. These were 20th century stars, and they drew their cohort from a list of the top 1,000 rock albums. They found an alarming rate of death among these rock legends, with mortality rates almost double that of the average mortal. In the past year, two new books have come out on Elvis's death, and both arrived at the same fatalistic conclusion. His fate was in his genes. The books are Destined to Die Young by investigative journalist Sally Hodell and The Strange Medical Saga of Elvis Presley by retired physician Forrest Tennant. Dr. Tennant is a pain and addiction specialist who ran UCLA's Methadone Clinic. He was also an expert witness in a wrongful death case involving Elvis Presley which gave him unique access to Elvis's doctors and medical records. For this podcast, we read those books, as well as papers in peer-reviewed journals to fact-check all the theories and arrive at our own best guess of what happened to Elvis. On the morning of August 16, 1977, Elvis Presley sat down on the piano in Graceland for what would be his final performance. Someday when we meet up yonder, we'll stroll hand in hand again, in a land that knows no parting, blue eyes crying in the rain. It was 8 a.m. in the morning, but for Elvis, a night owl, it was the end of a long day. He had just finished two hours of racquetball and was readying for bed. He took his usual dose of sleeping meds and went into the bathroom. Before he sat down on the toilet, his heart stopped beating and he fell to the floor and died. There is a myth that Elvis died straining on the toilet, and it is true that that can trigger a heart attack, but the forensic report concluded that he died in a few seconds before sitting down. A few hours later, his fiancée, Ginger Alton, found Elvis lying unresponsive. He was rushed to Baptist Memorial Hospital in Memphis and pronounced dead at 3.30 p.m. The cause of death, according to the pathology report, was cardiac. Elvis's enlarged heart had stopped beating after slipping into a sudden arrhythmia. When he died, Elvis had disease in nearly every major organ system in the body. Let's go through them. He had megacolon and gastric ulcer, fatty liver, traumatic brain injury, arthritis and herniated discs, hypertension and cardiomyopathy, prostatitis, glaucoma, 
and labyrinthitis, prediabetes and high cholesterol, COPD, antitrypsin deficiency, tooth decay, and anemia. How does all of that happen to a 42-year-old man? In this two-part podcast, we're going to look into five potential causes of Elvis's death. If you're not among the 50 million Elvis fans, we promise you'll learn some useful psychopharmacology along the way. Here are the five potential causes, keeping in mind that none of them are mutually exclusive. 1. Heart attack. 2. Drug overdose. 3. Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. 4. Head injury. And 5. A common pharmacokinetic effect that is going to help you understand a lot of adverse medication effects in your own practice. There is a sixth theory, which is that Elvis never died. Sightings of Elvis are as common as UFOs, and the first one happened within a few hours of his death. At the Memphis airport, a man who resembled the king was seen boarding a one-way plane to Argentina. The passenger registered under the name John Burroughs, a pseudonym that Elvis often used when checking into hotels. At least that was the rumor. In reality, Memphis did not offer international flights at the time of his death. But that doesn't change the meaning of the story. Elvis sightings belong to the genre of faith, not fact. Back to the medical record. Let's walk through each of those five causes of death. The first cause, a heart attack, was put forth by the pathologist who examined Elvis's body. Elvis had an enlarged heart, and this greatly increases the risk of arrhythmia. The second cause, drug overdose, is the more popular explanation, because it fits with the myth of an indulgent Elvis taking too many drugs. It also fits in line with our current opioid epidemic. Elvis did have opioids and sedatives in his system at the time of his death. In fact, he had two opioids, codeine and meperidine, Demerol, and six sedatives, which he took for anxiety and insomnia. There were three barbiturates, the barbiturate-like quaalude, the benzodiazepine Valium, and two older GABAergic hypnotics that were discontinued in the 1990s because of their high addictive potential. Think of them as the Zolpidem ambience of old. They were called ethanamate, valamin, and ethchlorovinol, placidol. All of these drugs were present at or below the therapeutic range in his system, with one exception, codeine. But codeine is an inactive prodrug. It has no analgesic or opioid-like effects until it is converted in the liver to morphine. But even with therapeutic levels, the combination still could have killed Elvis, all of those normal levels combining together especially when we're talking about sedatives and opioids, as both can cause death through respiratory depression. And Elvis had four risk factors that put him at greater risk of opioid overdose. He had respiratory illness, COPD, systemic medical illness. He had a history of drug overdoses, and he had sedative use. Just having the benzo alone on board would have increased his risk of an opioid overdose death by fourfold. 
So Elvis is exactly the kind of patient that we wouldn't want to prescribe sedatives in if he was taking opioids. But leaving out the opioid, it's possible that the sedatives alone could have added up to a fatal dose, even if each was in the therapeutic range on its own. This is a good argument against prescribing multiple controlled substances within the same class. I often see patients who present like that, saying that they need temazepam for sleep at night and clonazepam for anxiety during the day. And, you know, in the past, I was more agreeable to write for this, but I figured that if I converted the doses to clonazepam equivalents, everything would be okay. Everything within the therapeutic range would all be all right. But today, we live in a different age. The opioid epidemic and the increase in inappropriate prescriptions of controlled substances during COVID mean that there's a higher scrutiny for these kinds of meds. And, you know, the benzo conversion I was relying on there is not an exact science. There are many conversion tables, and you'll notice they all give different figures because the human body is not exact. Those conversions are just approximations along a bell curve. And in today's world, I would prefer to be more exact in the quantities and dosages of controlled substances that I'm prescribing. One drug we were surprised to see missing from Elvis's system is amphetamine. Elvis has a long history of amphetamine use. His classmates report that he used amphetamines in high school. He may have been treating symptoms of ADHD, as his friends from that era also report that he was unable to sit still and fidgeting all the time. Later, he took amphetamines to boost his energy and confidence before a show, and also to lose the weight that he gained through his cheeseburger, bacon, and butter-coated diet. If the coroner's report is correct, that Elvis died of a cardiac arrhythmia, then the amphetamine would have raised that risk even further. Stimulants are associated with rare cases of sudden cardiac death, which earned them a black box warning and a temporary ban in Canada in the early 2000s. These deaths usually have a genetic basis. They tend to happen in young adults when they are exercising, and there is no reliable way to screen for them, although a family history of sudden cardiac death before age 35 or a personal history of fainting while exercising can tip you off to the risk. We don't know if Elvis had ADHD, but if he did, it would have probably been treated with methylphenidate, Ritalin. Back then, ADHD was only treated in children, and methylphenidate was preferred. Amphetamines were second line. That's still the case today, as the largest meta-analysis to date found methylphenidate had the best risk-benefit profile in childhood ADHD. During Elvis's time in the 1950s and 60s, amphetamines were widely used, but they were mainly given to adults, not children. And they were given in droves and not for ADHD. Back then, those drugs were considered antidepressants. They were marketed for obesity and depression in adults. And doctors thought that they worked. Doctors, not the FDA, ran the show when Elvis started taking them through the American Medical Association, or AMA. Between 1905 and 1955, the AMA was the main arbiter of whether a drug worked. To advertise in the AMA journals, they required that the drug manufacturer prove its efficacy to the editors. And 
the editors published a PDR-like guide to those approvals in their annual book, New and Non-Official Remedies, from the AMA. If you noticed a problem with that arrangement, you're not alone. The AMA had a financial incentive to approve drugs. More approvals meant more advertising. In the 1950s, the AMA was under financial duress and increasingly dependent on advertising revenue. Democratic Senator Estes Kavavar investigated this dubious relationship and proposed a bill that would wrench control of drug approvals from the AMA and land it in the hands of the government FDA. Physicians were strongly against this, but Kifavar's interest was in protecting patients, whom he saw as playing a passive role in the Medical Pharmaceutical Alliance, or in Kifavar's words, he who orders does not buy, and he who buys does not order. Like Elvis Presley, Senator Kifavar was from Tennessee. And in 1956, Kifavar was the better known of the two. Kifavar was running for vice president alongside Adelaide Stevenson, while Elvis had not yet been crowned king. A derisive review from the Harvard Crimson sums up the sentiment. Elvis Presley is a new star from Tennessee, who looks like a cross between Estes Kifavar and Rudolph Valentino. Elvis spoke out in support of the Kifavar campaign, but he lost to Eisenhower Nixon. Kefavar rejoined the Senate and went on to introduce his drug regulation bill in 1959. That bill went nowhere at first, but in 1962, a worldwide scandal over sleep medicine pushed it into law. The sleep medicine was thalidomide, and the scandal did not involve its efficacy, but its safety. Babies exposed to the drug were born with serious malformations, including short limbs. The drug never made it to approval in the U.S., but the worldwide scandal was enough to shock the U.S. government into passing Senator Kefavar's bill. Kefavar's bill required companies to show that their drugs were not only safe, but also effective. So where did that leave the amphetamines that Elvis was taking? At first, the FDA grandfathered in the amphetamines for depression and weight loss, but that took a sharp turn in 1970 when the DEA classified them as Schedule II controlled substances for the first time. Prescription rates went way down. Many years later, Shire tried to reclaim these lucrative approvals for its amphetamine product, Vivance. They succeeded with binge eating disorder, but their drug failed in both large industry-supported trials of Vivance in major depression. To this day, Many psychiatrists still advocate amphetamines for depression, but I'll just say that it doesn't smell right when 60 years of industry-supported research has not been able to prove that they work. Elvis might have qualified for a diagnosis of binge eating disorder. His personal physician described a typical meal that Elvis had as three double cheeseburgers, half a pound of fries, and a whole pound of bacon on the side, about 5,000 calories in one sitting, twice the recommended calories for an adult male in an entire day. And Elvis often took amphetamines to lose weight before a tour. Amphetamines do lead to weight loss, and they do so by reducing caloric intake. But this benefit is short-lived. 
Elvis weighed 350 pounds at the time of his death, which would have placed his BMI at 48, well above the 40 cutoff for the highest risk, class 3 obesity. In Elvis's day, the preferred amphetamine for weight loss was a 3 to 1 mixture of amphetamine salts branded as Obitrol. The original formulation actually contained methamphetamine as well as amphetamine. Obitrol fell out of use in the 1980s, and in 1994, the manufacturer changed its name to Adderall, as in ADD for all, and started marketing the drug for ADHD. In Elvis's time, ADHD was a rare condition diagnosed only in children. The main symptom was hyperactivity and impulsivity, not inattention, and the disorder went by names that discouraged overdiagnosis. Who wants to be diagnosed with minimal brain dysfunction or a hyperkinetic disorder of childhood? The name was changed to ADHD in 1980, and in 1987, a revised edition of the DSM opened the door for diagnosis in adults stating that 30% of children with ADHD continue to have some symptoms in adulthood. Prescribing for adult ADHD was still off-label until 2004, when Shire gained the first FDA approval with Adderall XR. More approvals followed, and in 2014, Arbor Pharmaceuticals re-released the original racemic amphetamine, cleverly renaming it Evicio and burying any reference to its original incarnation as the widely abused Benzedrine. Benzedrine was the form of amphetamine preferred by Elvis Presley and many other celebrities in the 1970s. But if Elvis came to us today with a documented history of ADHD, observed in multiple settings and dating back to early childhood, would we continue his amphetamine? Probably not. There are a few contraindications to stimulants and amphetamines, and Elvis had one of them, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. This disorder, which thickens the heart walls in about 1 in 500 people, is the leading cause of sudden cardiac death. Psychostimulants and atomoxetine, Stratera, are both contraindicated in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy because their noradrenergic effects can set off ventricular tachycardias, causing the heart to race and causing arrhythmias and cardiac arrest. By the way, clonidine, which is FDA-approved for ADHD, is often used to treat hypertension in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. So this would have been a better choice if Elvis did indeed present with ADHD. This, by the way, is different from the sudden cardiac death we worry about with prolonged QTC. You know, the risk that you see with lots of psych meds like citalopram, Celexa, and many antipsychotics, that the QTC is going to get too long, prolonging, and causing a fatal arrhythmia called torsades de point. And this risk with stimulants is very different. For example, the risk of torsades goes up as the heart rate goes down. In contrast, the death we're talking about with stimulants is from high heart rate, ventricular tachycardia, and it becomes more likely as the heart rate goes up. 
which is why young athletes sometimes die while playing sports after using cocaine or stimulants. Remember, by the way, Elvis had done two hours of racquetball shortly before he died. And while stimulants cause ventricular tachycardia, opioids cause the opposite problem. They prolong the QTC, a particular problem with methadone, and can trigger fatal torsades to point. Elvis had opioids and sedatives, not amphetamines in his system when he died. Did the combination of opioids and sedatives cause his breathing to stop? Or did the opioids send his already weakened heart into torsades to point? Find out in our next episode. Earn your CME for this episode through the link in the show notes. Or subscribe to the print journal online and get $30 off with the promo code podcast. Keep up with the latest research with Dr. Aiken's daily psych feed on LinkedIn and Twitter handle at Chris Aiken MD, where he posts a new research study every day. So Dr. Aiken, what's the new study? Today we have a meta-analysis that looks into the effect size of S-ketamine Spravato and finds it surprisingly small compared to the effect size we've seen with ketamine.